Hello and welcome to Behind the Formula. I'm Gabrielle and I'm Ivana and on this episode we will discuss the easiest way to ruin a New Year's Eve party, the rise of Grand Prix racing in Europe, and why it would make terrible FIA officials. So, Gabby, do you want to hear how France dominated in the early century of the in car manufacturing and racing? Um, I think from the way you're wording that, regardless, I'm going to hear about it. Yeah, you have no choice in the matter. This is going to happen. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay. So picture this. 1880s, France, Paris. Ooh. Ooh, it is fright indeed. So it pretty much starts when a French, well, he's Belgian, a Belgian lawyer and entrepreneur, but he living in Paris because that's what you do. That must in be the a 1880s. very convenient business orientation. Yeah. You can just write your own contracts. You can write your own contracts and set your own dealings, but this man actually did not do that in the beginning. <laughs> but don't worry, he has success at the end. So, Eduardo, or not Eduardo, but Edward, I think that's how you say his name. We'll go. We'll continue. This will be the first of many butchered French here. French, whatever European names they have. He meets and forges a partnership with Gottlieb Daimler, who was a German engineer. And Gottlieb would actually go on to co-found Daimler Motor and Gesellschaft, and which the actual company would later produce Mercedes. But before then, Daimler had patent for this benzol combustion engine and it was a really good patent and the engine worked but no one in germany wanted it oh that's surprising given yeah. the later love affair with the car yeah it was a slow burn journey's love affair with cars were a slow burn it was a long it was term. a will they won't they <laughs> will they won't they it was pride and prejudice pretty much and from there he was like he needed someone like go um, not go leave edward saw it, saw it and was like i actually kind of like this this would be great if i bring it to france and with just a like a handshake they forged a partnership to start bringing the to pretty much have Edward gain the licensing rights to France mm-hmm. for um, Daimler's engine, it, but something happened to Serzin in 1887. Oh no! He sadly passed away. But on his deathbed, he went to his wife, or she came to him, Louis Sarzine, and he was pretty much, babe, I got this really good idea. I've told you everything about it. You know everything. <laughs> he took her hand. Like, she thought it was going to be something deeply yes. romantic. And he's like, take my business interests yes. into France. France. And you'll Belgium. make a lot of money. You'll make so much money. And she's like, sure, I'll do that. This isn't what I wanted to hear, but this sure. Is, I wanted to hear that you love me and our children, but like, if we need this, okay. And so from there, after he passed away, she ended up contacting Gottlieb and being like, hey, my husband told me about this. I pretty much know everything. If you need a contact in France, I'm your girl. And Gottlieb's like, you are my you are my contact. I have yeah, no one like, else. He's like, that looks like a very competent hatch. She, I trust her. I trust her. They've met a few times. They were like, I trust that woman. And also when she and pretty much Gottlieb sent her the licensing rights for both not Germany, both France and Belgium. And from there, she also needed someone to produce the engine. So she went and contacted Emile Levasseur and Emile's partner, René Penard, and was pretty much, hey, my husband already talked to you, but I now have the licensing agreement. Do you want to produce Damier's engine? And they were pretty much like, yeah, we do. That sounds cool. And from there, they started gaining a business partnership. But from that little partnership that Emile and Louise, something formed from that little, those little interactions, those little business interactions. It was love. Wow. Because nothing says love like a profitable business agreement. Well, you know, love can be fleeting, but a soul is 
solid business plan can be for decades. Yes. But and from there, they by that marriage, Emil did and subsequently his company, Benald, did gain full licensing rights now to the two regions. Yeah, I assume probably um, based on like other marriage kind of property laws, it probably like whatever was hers kind of became his, even though she's the one who kind of like forged it all. But, you know, that happens. But from there, they kind of started selling from other two other manufacturers like Peugeot and like other car manufacturers in France. So it was pretty much German engines were running French cars, which is kind of ironic considering their long term love hate relationship. Well, but- you know, sometimes you have for hundreds and hundreds of years, the old he's touching me argument. He's touching- They're like two kids in the backseat They're of a like, car. He's touching me. He's touching me. It's like, stop, stop. I can't deal with this right now. Mm-hmm. That is the world to France and Germany. <laughs> but sadly, what I was going through it, it was Louise's story was a little bit erased through this narrative, not a little bit, very much erased. She wasn't even mentioned a lot of the research I was doing. It was like pretty much thrown under the rug at her contribution to French manufacturing yeah, in the early that days. Yeah, to kind of be the trend. I mean, even outside of kind of motorsporting history, the kind of like women like helped their husbands with these grand projects and even sometimes they take the helm of it and then over time their story is mitigated or di- minimized and then later on and just forgotten. kind of thrown off to the side because in favor of like male dominated narratives that were yeah. more easily spread in the time. Because also within this um, era, we also had like Bertha Benz um, also working on certain like different car elements such I think her idea was like on brake pedal there should be like a little bit of leather so that it's actually like you can stop yeah and it's and like it's not com- slipping th- there's a comfort factor so it's kind yeah. of within motorsport an interesting history kind of of what women bring to it and sometimes it's more the idea of comforts in a car that they think of like there should be windshield wipers we should have heaters in cars yes. we want the comfort we're gonna do it. and while men are like we just want to go fast yeah. we're not thinking we're I don't doing care if the car falls apart when i get there i just want to be speed for but a moment yes and the women are like maybe we should like get there and enjoy the experience and not die through the moment but they're like we don't care <laughs> but you know that's maybe things we'll get yeah. into a little bit later yes, here that is farther down the line <laughs> the patriarchy's bullshit yeah and i mean these cars i assume they they just go they just they're, go they're not even worried about features no they just want to know how it goes and so as jane austen once said it's the truth universally acknowledged that a driver in possession of a new car must be in one of a place to show it off she definitely said she that she was thinking Cars in the future, this is where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And by 1894, car owners were offered the opportunity for the first time in an official capacity by Le Petit Jeanne's Paris to Roman race. The actual race was less of a race and more of an endurance run, which pretty much like, is the car going to make it at the end or are we going to just see everything fall apart? And the ir- They were down for either way, probably. Yeah. And the irony is, it wasn't a car that... Run, ran the or like won the race. It was a Dudion tractor made by Count Dudion. Wow, he was really pushing the limit of what does a car mean. And but the jury was not um, there to answer his philosophical question of what is a car because they were pretty much like, no, that is not a car. We don't consider that a car. Why did you even enter this in the race? But did they let him finish the oh, yeah, race they, before they started the yeah, inquiry? Yeah, they were like, they let's, let's see. They were like, I hope it breaks along the way so we <laughs> don't really have to bring this up. He <laughs> just came. We didn't know how to say no to him because he's really rich and really like powerful, and so we just let it see what happened. <laughs> they were like, we. Hope 
hope that just nature would take its course. And nature didn't because the tractor made it and it was going better than some of the cars there. So they had to be like, no, we can't let this. We can't let this happen. But then another race followed in 1895 from a race from Paris to Bordeaux. And that actually was treated more of as a race than an endurance run. And the race was run by Mille Lavasseur in his penalt. But he was actually eventually disqualified after going 48 hours straight like a beast because he had a two-seater rather than a four-seater car. I think they need to hire some better people for the start of these races. Whoever is at the start is far more lenient than the person at the end of this race. I think the French were like, we want the drama. We want the panache. We didn't know how it would go. And we just... We thought that we thought a lot of things would break and we wouldn't have to deal with them later. Yeah. I mean, it turns out... We thought our problems would solve themselves. (laughs) We thought nature would take its course. (laughs) But it was also like a little side note. Andre Michelin also came to the race in... In his Peugeot, and he was driving with his newly invented pneumonic tires, which were pretty much means air tires. But people were like kind of laughing at him because the tires were pretty much getting punctures like almost every second, and he always had to replace it. But he could, but our father, the Michelin man, would have the last laugh. Because there's airs in our tires. There's airs in our tires, and he becomes a huge factor in why certain people end up winning certain races because the Michelin Man. So from there, though, we go on to the Automobile Club of France and its formation in the same year, pretty much 18. Yeah, we're in 1895 right now still. We're still in the same year. They're like, we got two hitters. We got a double show. We got two hitters. Double here. feature? Double feature. That's the word. And they then, at that time, sponsored the longest race in history, which is from Bordeaux to Agen. And it totaled 1,710 kilometers there and back. It was divided into 10 stages. It ran from September 24th to October 3rd. The top three cars that won the race were two Penals and a Dudion Bouton tricycle. Because this man is still playing the philosophical question of what is a car? Does anyone invite him or? does he just like show up every time with like a new device and he's like I'm rich enough I can just keep on coming back and they're just like to Dion please please stop um, please leave we don't want you here he's like but no no no, no. I made I, something new and they're like it's still not a car it's still not a car like he Did doesn't look have- at look at his car look at the shapes the ideas look at what you brought and he's like but what is car but with this cow, with you, did not, cow. you did not properly define it on the entry form. No. And they're just like, we didn't think we had to. We didn't think we, you'd go we this far. We all thought we were in agreement. Of for, what a car is. Yeah. We thought you came to the meeting. But he didn't because he's a rich white man. Actually, Didion does have a huge effect on French manufacturing car industry. He does build cars. He eventually... No, he started off building cars, but I think he also wanted to do other stuff. But he also was like, I'm a rich white man who's anti-Semitic. the chaos element? Yes. Who's also very anti-Semitic because when the Dreyfus Affair happened, he was... He was in there? He was involved with the Dreyfus Affair in the sense that he was against Dreyfus and did some sketchy stuff too. And was not mildly, he was quite anti-Semitic. The anti-Semitism will return later. Yes, it is heavily featured throughout European history, which never ends well. But as we continue, on that note, let's continue. But pretty much after that race, the following few years had a shift in motoring. People were like, we actually want to see the cars go fast. We don't care about safety. We just want fast. And so Mercedes in 1901 stepped in and introduced what would be considered the first sports car. It had 
featured a full-cylinder engine with mechanical valves, a honeycomb radiator, steel chassis, pneumonic tires, and a magneto ignition. And that triggered... No, I, I like, can't unhear X-Men. Ignition. You just hear magneto. Magneto. I was like my horrible sense of saying ignition, but it was more like you're just. <laughs> no, I was in a joke before. Lore. You were seeing Michael Fassbender just like strut in and be like, "This man's hot," and I'm like, "Yes, he is." <laughs> All right, um, that's where my mind's at. I just picture Michael Fassbender when I think of Magneto. I it used to be Ian McKellen, but like he my, got replaced. He got it's like Michael Fassbender strutting in, and I think Ian McKellen would agree. He's a very handsome man. But did you replace Patrick Stewart with um, Jade McAvoy they also l- in this? Or do you have, like, Patrick Stewart with Fassbender in your vision of Professor and Magneto? It's both. Oh. Patrick Stewart and Jade McAvoy get equal footing in this. Oh, so both of them get to show up. Both of them get to show up. Ian McKellen's still... Ian McKellen's there as Gandalf. Like, he's in, like, the corner? He's in the corner. He's my Gandalf. He's my childhood because he's Gandalf. He'll always be Gandalf to me. Alrighty. Yes. Back to the show. Back to the show. But that pretty much triggered other car manufacturers to now be like, we got to get fast. We got to go fast. And that started triggering like almost like a competitive nature in Europe for car manufacturing. And that kind of led to what would be known as the Gordon Bennett Cup, which ran from 1900 to 1905. And it was organized in France by an American newspaper mogul and Tony Stark wannabe James Gordon Bennett Jr., the cup would kind of be the precursor to the Grand Prix and actually um, lead to its formation. But before we get to the actual cup or the Bennett Cup, we got to talk about James Gordon Bennett and how he ended up in France. So, Gabby, picture this. You're an heiress living Ooh. in New York, Manhattan. How exciting. It's New Year's Eve. It's 1876. You're throwing a New Year's Eve party and you're wait. You're Caroline May. Your name's Caroline May. Oh, okay. And you're waiting for your fiance to show up. Oh, like, no. Is he not on time? He's not on time. James isn't Ooh. on time. And you're like, where is he First at? First strike. First strike. Well, he has many strikes that night. <laughs> that's just, and probably before then too, but that's just one of many. So you're like, where are you at? Where are you at, boo? Where are you at? Walking around your Dolly Parton Road. You're chilling. Dinner's about to come. And then he decides to slosh in completely fucking wasted oh no and you're like why did you come he's like oh no i just wanted to come <laughs> that's my drunk <laughs> sounds like he's on the verge of tears at the <laughs> well you're gonna also be on the verge of tears soon oh no so the, just throwing a party i'm here to have a good time oh your fiance is here to ruin it because when he comes in completely fucking wasted he needs a place to relieve himself and you know like normally you go to the restroom you'd ask where's the restroom at and be like down the hall to the left and you're like cool well instead of probably going down the hall to the left he probably goes the other way and goes into your really nice room with your either with your fireplace and piano and depending one on one of those is more socially acceptable than the other like one. both aren't socially acceptable but, but one, one you can worse. get away with yeah one so a Allegedly, <laughs> depending on probably who walked in that room at that time. I mean, he- I'm not sure this is a situation that you really walk into a room and make notes. <laughs> it's more like you look away and it's like, I don't want to be here. But allegedly, he either peed in the fireplace or in her piano. Oh, that's not good. That's not good. No. So, like, the next day, allegedly... Did someone kick him out of this party? Yes, he left, and allegedly her brother horsewhipped him in front of a Manhattan's Gentleman Club the next day. That's extreme, but fair. Yes. Like, you deserve I f- it. I feel like my um, dignity was was returned by my brother. Her bro- your brother was like, he ruined it, gotta go do something. We yeah, can't do... Gotta make this actually a bigger scandal than it was before. <laughs> we gotta make it so much worse than it was. But from there, out of the 
complete shame of what he did, he decided to self send himself on a self exile to Paris. That's so hard. He's he's living a really hard life for a newspaper mogul son. So pretty much on in 1877, he leaves um, New York to Paris. And in 1887, he establishes the Continental Newspaper for his father's New York Daily, the Herald. And in 1899, he establishes the Gordon Bennett Cup race, which ran from, like I said before, 1900 to 1905. The cup was actually initially dubbed the Cup Coupe Internationale in the newspaper, which inf- um, reflected the desire to incorporate other European nations to compete in the cup and other recognized automobile clubs. But like when you're a rich man in Europe, it pretty much just becomes like, oh, named after Gordon. you. That's just Gordon's cup. They're like, Gordon's doing that weird shit thing again where he's just like doing weird shit in Europe. Like, we're just, it's Gordon's cup. It's, and Gordon, it's Gordon's fun activity. <laughs> it's his fun Gilded Age activity as an extremely wealthy white man. Mm-hmm. And he actually never went to any of the races. Oh, so he just likes to like buy things. He's like a collector. He buys things and he never opens the action figure. Yeah, he's like, he just likes knowing it's in his possession and somehow connected to his person. He's just keeping it on a wall being like, that's nice. That's but pretty. That though does really fit a trend though in this era of kind of like philanthropy and kind of like this idea of like, I want to have things associated with me that are like positive to show yes. that like I give to the people with my money. I give to the beepers with my money. Well, he doesn't have a French accent. But <laughs> he they, may have done a French accent he there. <laughs> he may have been also had to leave France. <laughs> he actually stayed there for a while. Like it was very interesting. His newspaper, um, he was still there even during the onset of World War Two and uh, not pardon me, not World War Two, World War One and actually stayed open during that period too. Oh, and wow. he's the only one who stayed there too. He was allegedly called a dictator as an editor, newspaper editor, because he was just crazy. But let's get back now to the race. So for entrance for the first cup, which was in nineteen oh oh, it required a three thousand franc deposit to the ACF before January first, nineteen oh oh, from each national club. And the cost of organizing the race would be divided amongst the participating clubs. The race period was either supposed to be held in May 15th to between May 15th to August 15th. And the race distance was either supposed to total 550 to 650 kilometers. There were regulations to the race. It wasn't just you can bring a freaking tricycle or tractor. They le- they're learning. They're, they're learning. evolving. They're evolving. It's like Pokemon. They're evolving. <laughs> it. Um, there was up to a three-car max um, that could be registered by each country. And all the parts produced for that car had to be manufactured in that country. So everything France made had to be made in France. Anything Germany made had to be in Germany. So I assume that would give them some countries like probably like a um, advantage it if they does. had like a more developed kind of manufacturing infrastructure than over like other countries. It does actually come if it does actually hinder. Well, you'll see later on. France, it actually hinders them, while in Germany, it kind of, like, kind of boosts them up a little bit more because it becomes... France had a more number of manufacturers, while Germany really only had one, which was so mainly Mercedes. So like... Like, they didn't have one, they had other ones, but Mercedes was a dominant, as they were, <laughs> always. But from there... Another regulations was the race rules and dictate the automobiles had to be two side by side seats with empty weight of 400 kg and a maximum weight of 60 kg a piece for driver and mechanic. 
Any means of propulsion was allowed. Additionally, whoever run the race would have his country, his or her country. It was mainly his, though, because of men, the patriarchy, had to host the race the next year. And what did the trophy look like? It was actually fantastic. It defied physics. There was no logic to it, except that they it was like logical. angels are driving cars. Angel, the, I think it was like the angel of victory or something was driving a car and the dude was on the hood of the car just steering and I don't know who was propulsioning it except for magic. Well, you can have any means of propulsion possible. That's true. Was it magic? Was magic a means of propulsion to I them? I mean, this time you could probably just be at the cars run on magic and they would be like, yeah, that makes about as much sense as my knowledge about engine manufacturing works in this time. Pretty much. So from there, we go to 1900, and the series started off to a less than a seller start. The par- um, the race was ran from Paris to Lyon, with mainly only like a large number of the manufacturers being French, like three cars were competing. And well, there was a total of seven cars that entered the race, and only two actually finished. That is a disappointing amount. Statistically speaking, it is not good. But the race, like I said, mainly favored the French, with the French drivers being the Chevalier René Denis, Fernand Chéron, and Lyon's Girardot. And all three of the cars were Pinals, and they were 5.3-liter four-cylinder engine. The remaining competitors were Alexander Winton, who was driving a Winton, and he kind of shot himself in the foot because he... By naming the car after himself yes. before seeing it on a track? Well, he said the car was really fast. He was like, it's so fast. It goes so fast. He's like, you're not even going to see me. You're not going to see me. I'm going to be a blur. I'm going to be a bullet. It's like you seeing a different video of an F1 car going, I didn't know it was fast. (laughs) That happened, actually. I saw a video of an F1 car. I was like, is that how it goes? And you you were like, Yvonne, yeah. I'm like, I just never saw this. How many races have you seen? (laughs) It was like, I just didn't know we went that fast because we see a slower version of it. But, which kind of though she shot himself in the foot, he didn't even finish the race and he barely could go an average speed limit. Oh, so disappointing for him. Yeah. And And he came all this way. He came all this way. And to be... Didn't even matter. Didn't even matter because he was a failure. The next guy was Camille Genazzi. He was a Belgian driver and he was driving a Snowic Bullied. This race began with a comedy of errors with Denis, who lost top gear and could only go 30 miles per hour. And then it followed with Genazzi committing a vehicular slaughter of six dogs until he retired due to a completely separate accident. Oh, so like... The dog thing was fine. Like, he... He kept on going. He was like, we're going to power through this slaughter. Or he up to number five, and he was like, am I cursed? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very common. So many dogs, like, just died due to racing. I guess they were, like, just on, like, open, like, tracks. Rose. Yeah, and, like, dogs were walking, and they were like, we don't know what that also, is. Also, I think a high amount of chickens. Yeah, that chickens will come later. That actually, because there is a penalty for chickens later on for in the Gordon Bennett Cup. Think of the chickens. Think of the chickens. And then at the end, only Penals of Sharon Girardot finished, with Sharon finishing first at an average speed of 36, 38.6 miles per hour. And also, Sharon, Sharon had- Did he also kill something during this race? Yeah, so he did kill a dog, and the dog caused serious damage to his steering gear, but don't fret. He stopped on the side of the road, his mechanic got out, and his mechanic ended up manually operating the water pump and trickled oil onto the driver's chain so Sharon could finish the race. What a pal. What a pal, what a friend. What a man. What a man. So Sharon did win, and pretty much it was like French victory. French got to keep the trophy and France everything. was like, I love to see it. 
Yes, I love to see it. So by 1901 to 1902, there weren't many changes to the race. It was still kind of boring. Not boring. Well, it was boring. Not a lot of people knew about it. She was a little bit in the backdrop. But... By the 1901 Bennett Cup, only had three cars actually compete. They were all French because the French could only get their shit together. The Germans were supposed to come with two Mercedes, but they ended up selling both the Mercedes before the so race. So the business was more powerful than the sport desire. Yes. And when they tried to re- remake those two Mercedes, they didn't have enough parts for those Mercedes. So they were like, we're just not going to come. And then an Australian named Selwyn Francis Edge did want to compete for Britain, and he drove all the way to the race. But then he received a puncture on his tires and he had to change them. And he didn't have, I guess, spare tires at the time. So he used French tires. And when he came to the race, they were like, the French marshals officials were like, which is that? And they're like, he's like, that's tire. I was like, but that's not a British tire. That's a French tire. And they're like, well, I didn't have anything else. So he's like, did you not read the rules? We had rules. We told you everything had to be made in Britain. This is not made in Britain. And they're like, I'm sorry. And it's like, Sorry, he doesn't fix this. You are now disqualified. And then he had to leave. <laughs> but that'd be one of those things I would think if you would bring replacement tires. I think given the stories, even with like the Model T, like pretty much every time you went out, you were going to get a flat tire. Yeah. I wonder if like his car did he burn through all yeah. of the extra tires getting there. Because his car was like weighed so much and it was just constantly breaking. And so, yeah. but I don't think he accounted for that. And so he was just yeah. like, and everything's actually, gone. Um, it's become pretty common with later race cars as well, where I think it's the weight distribution and the fact that they're so heavy meant actually that the rear tires went so fast that at some tracks they ended up having like two different pit stop areas oh. and sometimes they would only change your rears because they were like yeah that would be the, they would just be destroyed just oh because God. of like how heavy the car is yeah like older cars were just like you live or die by the sword yeah. have fun with what your color tires. you want your coffin to be okay <laughs> Black like my Which soul. Which actually with the Gordon Mack Cup is where we actually do get colors for cars. Yeah, we do. It was actually the first time, like, um, I think it was either, I forgot which year, I think it was either 1903 or 1904, where they started introducing colors for cars because now they had more competitors. So, like, Britain, that's where we got the British green, the yeah. French blue. The I Italian red. red. I and think then it, I think Germany white and Belgium. Was orange? Oh, yellow, I think. Yellow. Like one of and those, I think Swiss got to be, like, yellow and black or something. Yeah, so like, like that. What is your country? It was like mixing primary colors. <laughs> They're like Switzerland. What do you? What two countries do you feel you're most like? And we'll just put them together. We'll mix them together. We'll get another. We're gonna. Yeah, maybe they were like might have been white and red. I think sometimes it started to kind of diverge move around. A we, were, bit. we had some patterns. Some people there. were like, "That's not my favorite color," and they're like, "Next year, maybe. Next year, maybe we'll just change it. I don't know. Just deal with it. You're an adult." <laughs> You really made this official seem like he's having a bad day. He's just having a bad day. Is this a little glimpse of you as a um, stu- a steward? F one steward. People come to me. It's like I didn't mean to hit him. It's like well, some people don't want to die, but we just do it. It's like you just gotta not be an asshole on track, and it's like that's how you get it. And then you get many write ups from, <laughs> from various people from, going. I did not appreciate the energy she brought to our interaction. She yelled at me and told me I was a failure, and then. She she walked, she walked off. She <laughs> broke me down and she didn't build me back up. Like, she that's just Max. left me. <laughs> and that's Max. Was <laughs> that how you would? Actually, no, Max would be like, that sounds like my dad. <laughs> Alrighty, press on. Press on. So there were only two penals driven by Sharon and Girardot and Mors driven by Alfred de Var Sounds like Delahaye, but that's, that's a to be continued situation. 
The race actually ran incongruent with the Paris Bordeaux race. It was pretty much an inception race where it's like a race they within snuck a race. a small race into a big race. Yeah, because they didn't have pretty much enough competitors for the main Gordon Bennett Cup. So they're like, we're just going to throw it in the Paris Bordeaux race and hope for the best. So it's like two kids having like a party in the same area and like you're partnering with people and you're like, go join theirs. Maybe Good they'll job. be nice enough to take you. Yeah, maybe they'll give you some cake because I didn't buy you any cake because I don't know if you like they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's how the Gordon Bennett Cup was held. Yes. That year, there was actually only one of the three drivers actually finished. Um, Girardot, by default, actually won the race um, because his car didn't hate him that day. But overall, for the actual Paris-Bordeaux race, he finished 10th. But they don't ask how. They ask how many. Hopefully, in this case, they don't ask how many cars started. Yeah, because also they don't ask to ask you, like, where did you finish in the Paris-Bordeaux race? And you're like, 10th. And if you remove the zero, it becomes one. But by 1902, again, not huge major things happened or huge, not that many things happened that were important in that race, except for it was the first non-French driver to win. So Selwyn Francis... sure he thought that was important. He thought, he personally was like, I loved it. So Selwyn Francis Edge returned in his Napiers and was like, twirled around, came in the room being like, bitch, I'm back and I'm here to win. And he ended up winning kind of like last year's race by default because his car was the only one able to finish. And also similar to the 1901 race, it ran in congruency with the Paris-Vienna city, city race and it just ended from Paris to Innsbruck section. So they just ended a little bit earlier. But now... So they were just like celebrating on like everyone else is continuing on and meanwhile just like three cars are celebrating like on the side well of the road. only one car because the other two did <laughs> yeah, not make were it like, just like i think the race is over it's like the other cars did not make it it was just selwyn being like yeah beach so now 1903 the race has been thrown it's been the challenge has been put in british britain's courts mm-hmm. british courts i don't know but British be like, I actually can't have this race in England. And they're like, why? Because British laws. Yeah, I think they had some laws on the books at the time about like racing on like public roads. And I think like noise um, clearance things. Yeah. Or probably it was like the... Because I think later on, they eventually had to try and put like, mufflers on cars to allow them to race in like certain like country areas. Yeah, because they put this thing was based on population size. But we we're like, okay, Britain... If you want to play that game. So they threw it in Ireland's court and Ireland in the in combined with the British and Irish Automobile Club ended up hosting the race. But we, before we actually get to race, which was held in July 1903, we have to go to May 1903, which is the Paris to Madrid race. And I think this race affected how the 1903 race was kind of constructed because there were major changes to the Gordon Bennett Cup in 1903. And I think affected by how chaotic and dangerous the Paris to Madrid race yeah, was. Yeah, I think if you look at like how the... Well, I guess I should maybe give an account of the Paris-Madrid yes. race to really get us to the point of why these changes were made. So pretty much was setting up the race that was supposed to go from Paris to Madrid. And Spain was really interested in holding this race. But France was kind of wavering a little bit at the start because of some of the past races that they've had that maybe have had parts that didn't end well. And they're like, what are we doing here? And eventually, though, um, someone from the auto club or from the automotive industry came to the government and was like, these roads are public and the public wants to see the race. So we should do it. And, and that was a compelling argument, apparently. They also tried to use a whole, like, agenda of, like, well, you don't want the Spanish car industry to look better than our car industry, right? And they were like, oh, no, I don't want that. This we're race is going on. We're too petty for this. The race must go on. 
<laughs> and so it did. And it was just yeah, chaos they, and death. Um, pretty much. They had a lot of car- more cars actually start than they thought they would, which already created some chaos. And pretty much as the race went on, they started losing people to crash cars, flip cars, cars on fire. They also had spectators dying. Um, animals and just general mayhem till eventually I believe they got to Bordeaux and the government said we're done and they were like turn off your car we're gonna take it by horse to a train station they pretty much impounded the car horsepower came back and yeah. she was like you can't kill me yet yeah pretty much and um, afterward they actually I think at the time it was about like maybe eight people or so had been killed total drivers and spectators um, because this is really where we see kind of the rise of a spectator audience for sporting events and they don't they're kind of running onto the road they're standing way too close um, the people they hired they later argued that they were watching the race and they weren't watching the crowd to keep them off the track they were like ma'am like just stay there I'm just gonna actually watch see how this is going I'm more interested in, in that than your safety yeah thank you and they pretty much had it be that the accounts afterwards some were like we need to really consider ending racing like this on public roads if it's gonna lead to like death and mayhem um, while we had other people being kind of like these people were sacrificed on the altar of innovation That's and like, like a psycho would say yeah of kind of like this is the future and like yeah there's some stumbling blocks but like the stumbling blocks are human life yeah and actually, one of the people who died was even um, one of the Renault brothers. So it's like, hi. It wasn't just like random amateurs. Yeah. Like he was a car maker. And he, yeah. Which so, affected um, like Louis Renault a lot because after that race, he stopped racing. And later on, it becomes a series. Like he's like, I don't want to go in a race car because my brother died in a horrific way. Yeah. And I'm Which is actually, I think, a big trend as well with other race car drivers. Like if you're a rally driver, if you do have driving and your kind of co-driver dies, you're like, maybe I don't like the same one. Maybe I don't want to die. But, um, to continue on, though, with comparing how these two races, I think you do see a lot of overlap of like the problems with the Paris Madrid race being now solved in this yeah, that, Cup but I in think there maybe is a dialogue between them of like them seeing like oh these are like issues that happened at this race and I think we're going to try and now compensate for similar issues maybe happening at our race yeah like a really bad way to learn a lesson about how to host a race yes and when we get to, let's go to Ireland's side of the thing because now Ireland has to host the race and she was actually very excited Ireland was like someone's coming here this is fun I'm excited they were hoping for economic boost mm-hmm. from tourism that's yeah. And I also think maybe considering like how international these races are getting, probably too, of like I get like a bigger seat at the table, like other countries, important people are coming to my place and people will think that I'm good at things. And it turned out actually to be a huge not waste of money, but Ireland had to bear a brunt of the cost, pretty much. Well, they yeah. had so to. So it's like, you know, when like, like the king comes to your house and like the old like stories where it's like, oh, it's a great honor that the king is visiting you in your country estate, but he's also eating you out of house and home with like a hundred people he brought yes. with and him. And then he's going to complain about the food and just shun you at the same time. And the king's not even going to come because the king was supposed to come for, they were really hoping for King George to come and then King George neighbor came to this race and they were like, oh, okay. They're like, I actually don't know what I expected. I was disappointed and I became even more disappointed throughout this whole experience. Lots but, a little okay. bit of hope I didn't know I had. Yes. <laughs> 
it, so the race ended up they had to bear the brunt of the off officials and soldiers they had uh, hired to marshal the race and they also had to bear the brunt of the cost of disrupting ordinary traffic for daily economic use the irish also had to deal with french judgment of their food and whiskey where an irish local writer said herein the french were unnecessarily fussy because whatever is wrong with irish cooking you can always gamble on the whiskey being drinkable because the idea was that when the French were coming, they were pretty much wouldn't drink the whiskey unless the bottle was open in front of them. And also they weren't eating in any of the French restaurants because the French came in a boat and just stayed on the boat the whole time and weren't even going to any of the Irish locations. They were so like, France was like a little bit upset they weren't hosting. The Fr- she was very upset. They were like, I had to travel. I had to travel. It's so difficult as she's just leisuring on her boat. But, you know, it's the French. From there, though, the actual race and the major changes we saw from the daily from the older Bennett Cups was it was no longer a city to city race. It was now on a closed country road circuit almost that was shaped as a figure eight. What happened? How does the middle of that work? It's between you and God. You just have to pray. Fair enough. Yes. And also, so it also introduced certain controls where they had you weren't just all starting off one point. You had like certain few minute intervals between each other so someone would stop and then someone would go and you just keep moving forward and from there we kind of got more cohesion and also we got the most participants in the race we had a total of four nations competing which was france england germany and america however of the 12 cars that were entered in the race five completed and Camille Genazzi switched sides from Belgium to Germany, ended up winning in the Mercedes. Though, don't fret, the French were still kind of dominating. They got second and fourth position. And the fifth went to England's edge. And France was also awarded the Scott, the John Scott Montague Prize for best performance of a team. Like in the Olympics when you get like the team award? Yeah, where they're like, you guys did pretty okay. But also there was another funny thing where I mentioned the law of chicken slaughter and there was a penalty. So this race kind of introduced a financial penalty for every chicken killed. You had to pay back. The driver had to give like reimbursement to the person that killed the chicken. Well, that's kind of nice. Yeah, because there was just like a lot of vehicular slaughter of animals and people were like, you gotta start penalizing them for all the times they killed my chickens. Yeah, like, I mean, that's money. That's money. That's like, you have a chicken that's for your food, livelihood. you have a chicken for eggs, you have a chicken for everything. Chicken equal life. So yeah, it's racing started becoming more in, in competitive and like now car manufacturers were like, we want to win. And now we have a national incentive to win. So by 1904, since even though he wasn't a German dra- German man, he still Mercedes won. So now the Gordon Bennett Cup was now in Mercedes, or not Mercedes, but Germany's court. And Germany was like, we love this. We're prepared for this. We got this. Like, I have a binder for this. I have a binder. I got everything. And so it was no longer a small race with a city city limit. It was now in a closed circuit like we had in the original 1903 race. And also we now have dignitaries coming to the race. Yeah, we have Kaiser Wilhelm II and other political figures and his family coming to see the race. Oh, so and we're kind of starting like, to get like some political power within yeah. these events. So it's like now becoming, it's no more like this small race. Now it's like, oh, this is actually very important. And the race also had the most variation of car manufacturers than any other race prior. It had eight to nine different manufacturers enter and a 18 cars total racing with six different nations competing with it being France, Belgium, Italy, Great Britain, Austria, and Germany making it the largest number of entries to the cup to date. And it also showed the like the influx of manufacturers because Fiat 
also was introduced. So we got a little Italian team Fiat coming. And we also like it started becoming less of a one car, one win. It's like other countries are being like, I want to see it come in and like see my manufacturing and see how it competes with other countries. And the race r- rules were similar to Ireland. There were seven minute intervals with each car going. It was in a closed oval shaped country road in Salzburg. And the r- winner was actually Leon Thierry, a Frenchman driving a Richard Breiser. He crossed the finish line second, but he was who and he was 11 minutes behind Camille Genassi, who was in first position in the race, but he ended up winning because he had the overall fastest time because of that 7 minute 7 minute buffer between each other. It must be awkward to be like waiting at the end of the race being like, "Am I first? Am I not first? What emotions am I supposed to be feeling right now?" Do I have to wait? And they're like, yeah, we have to wait because we got to, he, he might win, but we don't know. We got to take the time. You just got to wait, sit here and hope for the best. <laughs> but it was also interesting. This would actually, the next 1905 race would be the last um, Gordon Bennett Cup and it'll kind of be in this place of origin, which is France. But before we actually go to that last Bennett Cup, in June 20th, 1904, a couple of days after the Association, the Association International d'Automobile Club Bricogne was formed, which is, you know her, you love her. Well, you may not love her. A lot of people don't love her. Ye old Fia. And I think ye old Fia rolls off the tongue a little bit easier. Yeah, then... <laughs> that was a word. That was the gargles. <laughs> But it was interesting. I think like this probably stagnate, um, not stagnated, instigated with now. It's like becoming a political event. Like there needs to be rules involved. There needs to be structure involved. And sh- the yield fia kind of like created, started wanting, getting more involved and wanting to create rules and like regulations within it. Yeah, because I I believe as well that in like 1903 was actually one of the times where the international automobile clubs kind of started talking to each other. And I assume the Gordon Bennett Cup kind of was a part of that if you're showing up to the same event events, you probably are like, oh, maybe I should talk to Jeremy's Automobile Club and make sure we're not planning races in the same weekend. And I think that eventually kind of built into like, well, maybe we should like have a board where we're all together to help make like unifying decisions and probably like also I would think probably share like, hey, that happened in your race and that didn't work out well. Share with the class. So maybe we cannot have the Paris to Madrid race happen again. Share with the class your disasters and failures because we need to know what not to do. Mm hmm. So 1905 rolls around, and that would be the last Gordon Bennett Cup to history because France has a little bit of an issue. She is only allowed three cars, and but she has a plethora of manufacturers. While Germany is allowed three cars, but she is also submitting in a total of six cars as well because Mercedes both has factories in Germany as well as Austria. Ooh, and there loophole? M- loophole in that race because remember it was like all the parts had to be produced in the country of origin. So even though Mercedes is a German car company as long as she has a factory in Austria and Austrians are buying it they can still put it in. So loophole, loophole, loophole. And the French are being like no one's allowed to use a loophole except me. C'est moi. so they start being like okay we don't want this anymore and so they want to have their own race that year which is going to run concurrently with the Gordon Bennett Cup which is the Grand Prix yes Grand Prix is starting to come in which pretty much translates right to just like grand prize grand prize it's like cash cash money money France France. cash money Germany cash money everybody because it was pretty much named after the 45k franc prize you would win at the end so it was really just the idea was it was you say it like you see it (laughs) 
<laughs> but Yulfia stepped in being like, because France also wanted to change the rules of the Gordon Bennett Cup to fit similar to the Grand Prix rules. And like, Yulfia was like, you can't do it. This is like such a last minute change. You just can't. So they ended up coming up with a compromise being like, okay, this is the last Gordon Bennett Cup. It's going to be held under the Gordon Bennett Cup rules. And then in 1906, you're going to get your own race. It's like, where's this, this going to end? Was the French Automobile Club just like, I've never been so betrayed by an organization that's based in my own country yeah, she, that I was a founding member of? She was like, I made the rules. Why did I make a com- like organization to tell me rules and I didn't want that. Why did I why did I screw myself over like this? Why did I make a rules upon rules upon rules for myself? Bureaucracy is my downfall. <laughs> but from there, kind of like we get to the last Bort Gordon Bennett Cup, which is now held back in France. There were five nations competing, France, Italy, Austria, and Germany, uh, not Germany. Oh no, it was France, Italy, Austria, Germany, and America. And it was said while the Germans in the 1904 Cup picked the road because of the infrastructure and reliability that they could give to the cars. France went the opposite route and chose chaos instead. Yeah, the road picked was located on ancient volcanic hills of Puy de Dome. Oh, so they wanted biblical chaos. They wanted biblical chaos on a whole nother level. They were level. just like, what if we threw a volcano into this? It the would city? be fun. It would be, it would add some spice. We're really false advertising this volcano. Yeah, this is actually like, it's been dormant, I think, for thousands of years. It's actually a very beautiful area. I Google it. Like, it's stunning. <laughs> it's It has like a lot of like nature hikes and everything. And it was said the Avigny, Avigny course, as it was called, was 137 kilometers of undulating terrain that included 3,000 corners. The tightest of them even demanded the drivers to use their reverse gear. So sometimes you got to go backwards to go forward. Yes, because that's the logic the French were using. They were like, we want to ruin everybody's day and even our own. Because, you know, don't discriminate on whose day you ruin. Yeah. Take yeah. the power, ruin your own day as well. <laughs> power move. <laughs> power move being like, I'm willing to take myself down to take everybody down. That's the, that's the logic that they have. And prior to the race, actually, France thought Mercedes was going to be their main competition. But the when they started racing, Mercedes didn't have the pace. And so it ended up being Fiat turned around, did a surprise bitch and was like, I'm actually your main competitor that day. Ooh. Italy be like walking in, being the like flare, the flare. She walk in, she be like, I'm out. cute. I have a cute dress on. I'm your main competition. And she was like, Fiat actually almost won that um, that day's race. Vicenzio Lancia's Fiat was leading our boy Leon Theri's Richard Reiser 30 minutes behind. But as chaos always ensues in a race, a pebble from the road below ended up hitting the radiator and it leaked, caused it, causing the car to overheat and allowing the theory to win at the end. But don't fret, Fiat still got second and third place in the race. And it was the first time also when the same man won tw- two years in a row back to back. So they were like, someone's won twice, we're right in this. Yes. <laughs> we're ready to end this. We're just like, we're the main champions. We ended it in our own terms. We need to end on a high note. Which is chaos. And it was also in, so at that point, the cup was returned to James Gordon Bennett, who ended up having the same, like other races. He changed his interest to hot air balloon racing, yacht racing, um, airplane racing, all named the James Gordon Bennett Cup. So really, he's like the person um, on their computer where it's like untitled draft 48. And you're like, what is that? And you're like, my finances are a picture of my dog. We don't know. We're just going to click on it and like your tax guy and you're the tax guy being like, God fucking damn it. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this man so much. Why does he come here? And why does he name all? Why does he name everything James Gordon Bennett? 
This is so <laughs> It's James oh. Gordon Bennett document number three. James Gordon Bennett document number ten. Ten. And they're like, really gives it, you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving for research. Yes. You know, just mess up people in the future. In the future, you Google James Gordon Bennett Cup and then you get hot air balloon racing and it's like, that's not what I wanted, but okay. And from there, though, we're going to get, we get the Grand Prix. And that becomes the inkling of the organized F1 chaos that we know and love today. So let's go to the Grand Prix. So 1906 was the first year ever of the French GP, which was held in Le Mans and organized by the ACF. There was another... Just can't get enough of Le Mans with these race organizings, can they, they um, were like, via. Le Mans was the start of a lot of chaos and a lot of death. Just like their histories, just a lot of ghost hanging on attractive. Just being like, hey, 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 how you doing? How long have you been here? Like just recently, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, we've been here for hundreds of years. But it was actually there was another GP in 1901 called a GP, but we don't talk about it. It was not. We just throw it under the rug. We forget about it like an unwanted stepchild. We just forget about it. We move on. Yeah, it seems to be within the history kind of of naming um, Grand Prix that at one point, um, like the I think it was either Yield Fear or the French Automobile Club tried to retroactively name things the French GP. Yeah. And everybody was like, you can't name it a different name than it was. And they're like, but I have the records. I have the I power. could just break out the Sharpie and write on things. <laughs> and they were like, please don't. Please don't do that. That's not right. It's like, how do I put white out over it and we can fix a lot of things? So it's like, that's that's but, not it. That's not it. Okay. But, you know, we'll get into their archival collections later, yes. perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but for the actual GP, there was no strict requirements. The cars only had to follow 100 kg guidelines, which is 2000, not 100, pardon me, 1000 kg guidelines with the fuel consumption regulation of 30 liters per 100 kilometer. Yeah, I think that's how you say it. We're going to move on. The ACF set a limit for country's number of entries based on the parameters they chose, which was determined by each country's industry. I don't know what the formula was. I couldn't find one, but I assume it was pretty much them being like, Did how they do they say pull things out of a hat? They're like, we're pulling for Germany now. We got a four. Sounds about right you for put Germany. Put it on the blackboard. And then they pulled for Britain and they saw six and they're like, no, 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 no. Pull again. Pull again. Three. Three. Yes. Throw it on there. Throw it on there. Belgium. They can have whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. It's Belgium. So the town of Le Mans was chosen because they were able to get the town council and local hotels were able to get the funds necessary. And the ACF were like, okay, yeah. you have money, we I go there. I think in this time as well, they benefited from kind of, if you have a close track, you can make a grandstand finally. Yeah. And then you can make money off of at least admission to that area. Yeah, and like the revenue would cause by people coming down there, staying in the hotels, like going to the restaurants. So it's like this idea of like the economic effects of racing within that region were starting to take into effect because people were like, oh, if people come, we can make money. They it was like Ireland's eat. hopes and dreams, but other people other were able places. to put in other places. So Ireland had the idea of it, but like other people kind of did it better. Oh, I'm sorry, Ireland. Oh, we love you, Ireland. <laughs> Is that the only country you're going to apologize to? But they, they deserve a lot of apologies throughout their history. So... The so the race was to got a total sixty four point one one miles, and it was to be of local road, and it was supposed to be six laps spread across two days. Hi, this is editor Yovana. Just to make a quick little fix, it's supposed to be six laps each day rather than six laps total. Now back to the regular scheduled broadcasting. Um, those two days being June 26th and June 27th. And it was going to total 769.36 miles, which is going to be quite the long distance. The track was very triangular with extreme hairpin terms. 
and the gravel road was paved with tarmac, which actually became extremely hazardous to everybody's health because it was a really hot summer's day when they went. And it was like, people were like, it's beautiful. And then it turned extremely deadly because the tarmac started melting. And as people drove, um, tarmac was slap, uh, splatter into people's eyes. Some people also chose not to wear goggles because safety was not an option. Well, and so, safety obviously was an option. Yeah. You could opt in or out of safety. <laughs> you can just peace out of safety being like, I don't want safety. And a lot of people had to retire because of eyes melting with tarmac. Not eyes eye melting, but it was like tarmac in your eyes. Yeah, I don't know a lot about medicine, but I assume you don't want tar in your eyes. Yeah. But also it was an interesting thing to avoid villages. They did build temporary wooden bypasses and to like not disturb the daily life of everybody and hopefully not kill chickens and dogs because that's what we hope for. Um, the total entries and starts of the race were 32 cars. 23 of the cars were French, 6 Italian and 3 German. 90 second intervals were set between them at the start. At the end of the two days, the winner was Ferenc Siz, which was a Hungarian driver and engineer for Renault. And he was the first official Grand Prix victor. Do you know... Well, do you want to know the odds and how he won the strategy he had? Um, sure. Okay, so Sis's victory was a surprise because people had a 200 to 1 chance of him winning. And statistically speaking, what does that look like? Every Something terrible had to happen. Like, all the car, like a lot of the cars had to not finish for him to win. Like, something horrific had to happen. He had to, like, stroll through it to go. Thank you. Thank you, Statistics Corner. Yes, you're welcome. It's come to Statistics Corner, but not mine because I don't know statistics. I do know statistics. So that's a lie. Yeah, you, I, you really undercut yourself. I do. You're I, very good at, at math. Math. <laughs> Math-ish. Math-ish. Just, math-ish. So, the reason, actually, he won, he had a really good strategy. Which is not a strategy, but he had a really good new innovation on his side, which was Michelin, the Michelin Man's detachable um, rim tires, which was very favorable to Sis and a few other competitors. It was pretty much you can go out if your tire blew up instead of having to get out of the car, cut the tires, put a new tire on, which was like a 20 minute process, pretty much like commandeer a whole new tire on the track. He could just take it off and put it back on five minutes total to like fix all the tires if he needed to. So it was like a very easy way of doing it and saved him a lot of time and via that he was able to win the race and by him winning the race he did help Renault sales double that year people were like Renault won we gotta go to Renault we gotta I have saw Renault. Renault in the newspaper she, did she win it's like yeah we gotta get a new Renault we gotta get Renault Clio ye old Renault Clio <laughs> in yellow in yellow <laughs> But there was also a slight irony of the 23 French um, cars that competed in the race. Only seven French cars actually completed the race. Oh, so when they asked them how the race went, they went, we won. We won. They didn't mention how many cars entered the race. In this, yeah, they don't want the answer to how many because the how many would just be like everything. They're just like, we won. That's the important part. That's the important part. Next, <laughs> next item on the agenda. And it says, but how many? It's like, no, 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 no. Next press conference question. I assume they had press conferences back then. Um, and at the end of the 12 cars, the only 12 cars finished of the original 32. And while French dominated the European market in automobile manufacturing, other countries started to become more competitive and starting to catch up. And you'll see that in the 1910s with other countries being real competitors to France and that one of them being Mercedes. And you'll see in the 1914 Cup. But before we get to the 1914 Grand Prix, there are other races that happened. Yeah, I feel like in this time, motorsport kind of starts like booming where every country 
country seems to want their own event, which I mean makes sense with what we saw with France at the Grand Prix. They're kind of like, I want my own event, so I have a chance to be good at it and yeah. to like attract people to my industry and attract people to my area. Yeah, we see it in the Vanderbilt Cup where America really made the Vanderbilt Cup was because American car manufacturing was really built on a capitalistic ideology, which was like just make as much as we can, just throw yeah. it out. We don't. And the also, quality too, kind there. of wanting as well like a more people to just be in a car. Yeah, and help with American car industry and help improve it. That was like one of the main things of the Vanderbilt Cup. And then we had the Tarjo well, we Floria. Also the, we also the Indianapolis oh, yeah, 500. Indy 500 also yeah. to speak of American racing that starts yeah. in 1909. And actually for a while was part of the European Racing Championship. It was kind of the American leg until eventually it kind of went off to go be its own thing. She became her own thing. She was like, I don't need you European people making fun of me. I can be my own hot young thing down here. All right. And then we also, as you were mentioning, um, got the Targa Florio in 1906, which was an open road race in Italy. And it actually is kind of interesting, I think, because it relied on production or stock car entries which meant that your um, car pretty much couldn't be a one-off. There had, yeah. I think, in the first round of it, had to be like ten cars of your car had to exist, and you had to kind of be the spec model. You couldn't kind of do all sorts of crazy things to get more power. They wanted, I think, more see normal cars. It kind of reminded me of rally racing too, like mm-hmm. early inkling of rally racing because like the roads were extremely dangerous. Like mm-hmm. you were like pl- dancing with the devil when you'd be driving around the Tarja mm-hmm. Floria because yeah. it was very like Sicilian, old Sicilian country roads that didn't have the infrastructure kind of like that French and German roads did. Yeah, and as well, um, I find it funny within these ones where you had to pay an entrance fee into it and they really inspected your car engine. Like they would tell you, open up the hood, we want to see the engine and make sure it's the right thing actually. But for a fee you could actually have your competitor's cars looked at. So you could be like, look at his car again, and they would be like, pay me. Pay me. Pay me. So really, I guess if you're rich, you could be like, I don't like his car. I don't don't like like his car. I don't like his mustache. I think he's up to something. I don't like the way that man looked at me when I walked in. I need you to go check that. Here go the money. Go go check him. I will be with you next to you while you check in, and I will point out the same exact flaws that you don't see. <laughs> um, and actually, later on with the race, they kind of get more like requirements too, and everything. Yeah. So that's kind of how the in the period of racing before we kind of get the last GP. I wouldn't say the night of the 1920s, but it's one of the oh, there's other GPs, but European GPs before World War One begins. So in 1914, the last GP of that season was the French GP, which was held in Lyon, and it was. Tentious to say the least, um, specifically between Germany's Mercedes and France's Peugeot, because a few weeks before it, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand happened in Sarajevo, and a few weeks after this GP, we did have World War One start. So it's really in a bad sandwich. She's in a bad sandwich. The, the like the, the condiments in the sandwich. You're like, can I get a new sandwich? Off. They're going off. They're like, you got PBJ mixed with mustard. You're like, I need to not eat this, or else something bad will happen. And something. And but that, before that, before that, people were like, one France, more race. one more race, France and Germany's rivalry, rivalry going in the forefront. So for the actual race, there was a total of 37 cars competing from 13 manufacturers coming from five countries, four from France, two from Britain, three from Italy, two from Germany. 
um, Germany, and two from Belgium. And it was the first actual GP to have a set rule restricting the cars to a set engine size of 4.5 liters and the usual maximum weight of 1,100 kgs. And it was got a total 20 laps in one day. And there was a lot of spectators that came. I think it was 300,000 spectators were spectators. We <laughs> have an accent shift. Spectators. Like a robot accent shift. I'm actually a robot from another country. I'm Jimmy Carr. <laughs> that was a lot to unpack on you. I'm sorry. Let's continue. <laughs> so there was like, and they were like stretched over the hillside. People were like, we just see swaths of people. That's a lot of people, which like groups now scare me. When I see people in groups, I'm like, step away from each other. Six feet apart, Step away please. from me and step away from each other. I don't need this. The cheapy start and order was decided by ballot, and there were 30 second intervals between each driver. So before we actually start the race, we we need to talk about Mercedes. <laughs> Like, a lot of people said throughout history, we need to talk about Mercedes. Because Mercedes, before the race, a couple months before the race, she wanted to win. She had a plan. And she was like... She pulled back out the binder. She pulled back out the binder being like, we need to win. And they're like... And everybody yeah. went, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why Germans sound like that. I'm sorry, Germany. <laughs> Continue on. Continue on. So, they needed to do actually two things. They needed to actually build the first time a small and high RPM engine, which they haven't had before. And then they needed to do what Mercedes does best, which is just practice, practice, practice. So, the engine built to combat the Peugeots was a four-cylinder airplane engine. Oh, so when in doubt, just build a plane on the ground. Yes, build a plane that can go really fast and just don't question it. Okay. So, Chief Engineer Paul Daimler, which was the founder's son, our, go- our friend Gutlieb Daimler's son, and Fritz Neiliger decided to incorporate an air- the aircraft engineering section of the factory and testing the engine while the aut- automobile department built the engine. And, like, Mercedes poured over every detail, ensuring our aerodynamics of the chassis, testing the durability of the tires, making sure the fuel tank had a thermos bottle with, a co- with cool refreshments for the crew. Oh, so, they were going to win and they were going to enjoy it. Yes, they were like, we got to be comfy and also they made sure to fit all five drivers within their car so you're like you got to be comfy you got to be cool you got to have a snacky before the pracky <laughs> so extensive testing was done on mercedes before the track in leon was closed in april so to prepare for the race they went down there and they were just like put that car on the road just go fast we got to figure out the flaws and they were actually able to fix a lot of the flaws of the cars um, issues with the car and have the drivers actually become comfortable with the car as well and that that kind of gave them peak performance when they came to the track that year. They were prepared and they were prepared to fight the Peugeot driver Georges Boileau, who was the favorite to win because the last two Jeep French GPs, the last two years running, he won. And Mercedes had five drivers. They had oh. five, five champions that day. Do you want to know their names? Of course. Do you want to know the Street Fighter lineup? Yeah, I want... I Are we in the starting menu? Do I get to pick my fighter? You are going through... You're going like Chun-Li. Who are we going to go next? So you had... Christian Lattenschläger. He looked actually like a man, if you look up his picture, he looked like a German man that if you told him we have no strategy, he'd go up to the paddock, get out of his car and punch you in the face and you knew you would deserve it because you'd be like, I had no strategy. I'm sorry, I failed you, Christian. The other one was Louis Wagner, the only Frenchman on the team, Otto Salazar, Max Saylor, and Theodore Pilet, a Belgian man. Max Saylor, in the beginning, like, Mercedes had a strategy. Mercedes had a, like, inkling of a strategy which was pretty much 
first 10 laps, stay slow, like not slow, but like keep a consistent pace, warm up your engines, like don't go too crazy pretty much. And then 10th like lap Like long in, game here. We're playing the long game. And then on 10th lap, come in, we're just going to change your tires no matter the quality and we're going to slap your ass, get you back out. And then the next last 10 laps, just like you got to gun it. Pedal to the metal. We got to win. Max decided to... He was playing a short game. He was playing a short game of... Gotta go fast, gun it on the first lap. Gun it on the first, like, second, so he pretty his much... first turn, he's just, like... <laughs> full speed. Full speed ahead, going as his namesake. So pretty much Max Saylor decided to send it on the first lap, passing Boileau on lap three when Boileau pitted, and then Boileau turned around being like, what? He's he's in front of me? And then Boileau ended up getting back in his car and just gunning it as well oh, after so Max. he was like, I need to beat him. I need to beat it. Like, the Frenchman saw it and was like, no, 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 no. Need I to beat him. I need to beat him. I need to go. So pretty much he gunned it at the end. And that kind of like, like, bit Boileau in the ass around. Is that the saying? I don't know. Bit him in the butt later? Yes, let's just go. Bit him in the butt later because him's gun it strategy that Sailor pretty much... Uh, ruined him at the end and sailor didn't know that but sailor ruined himself on lap six when he broke connection rod and had to come in and pretty much be like so i didn't actually make it to lap 10 i didn't listen to the strategy and nothing worked but i had fun and i think that that is the real important part of today and then mercedes Mercedes was like like, like, no 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 i don't care about your fun i wanted i wanted to win and like Lots and Schlinger, even before the race, told him, you certainly don't have a clue about Grand Prix driving. One has to drive there totally different. And Sailor decided to completely ignore that. He was like, I'm going to figure it out when I get uh, yeah. there. He employed the Charles Leclerc strategy of, I don't think I just go. I just do crazy. So that was his whole strategy. Also, there is like side little venture. Ferrix is our first ever GP winner, came out of retirement for this race and ended up getting hit by car on lap 11 when he was coming out to change... Um, his car to change a tire on his car. The tire giveth and the tire, the tire taketh. Yeah, but he ended up having to be dr- driven back to the paddock by his mechanic. Thankfully, Sferic survived. He was fine. He actually lived a good long life. He had a happy ending. <laughs> and so now we jump forward. We're on lap 17. And the distance between Latinschlanger's Mercedes and Boileau's Peugeot is about 14 seconds. And by lap 18, Latinschlanger actually took the physical lead of the race, um, leaving Boileau behind. And to the dismay of the French crowd, they were like, oh, no, 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 no. Like I said before, Boileau's need for speed attitude in the first half of the race kind of bit him in the butt. Um, He ended up having an engine valve dropped on the last lap of the race. He ended up having to pit on the side of the road as he was crying. And at that moment, pardon me, I gotta fix this. Lawton Schlager actually in that moment ended up physically passing him. Oh, and while Boileau so he was kicked crying. him when he was down. Yeah, because it was like they had the 90 seconds well, before. I mean, yeah. But why not cry on the side of the road? Yeah, you just got to do it. So the thing is, he probably didn't have a helmet. So oh, probably... no, people saw him. He cho- he was one of the people who chose not to wear safety gear. Oh, so he was just, he was fully out there, tears streaming down, like, his dirt-covered <laughs> face. Face, like, you could see it because it was, like, the only clear. And yeah. the German, and Lanschlinger was like, don't look at him. He's just, I can't. That It's so making me sad. So you know, at least if you're wearing the modern helmet, no one knows you're crying. Yeah, you're just like. They can hear you, maybe. They can hear but you they over the radio. And they can also turn off the radio and give you a moment of silence <laughs> and be like, 
he he's go, going through it. He's going through something. So at that moment, that he physically passed him, so he is winning the race. And the French crowd, at the dismay of both seeing a German man win, they also had to experience the first one, two, three finish in history, which was of a Mercedes, and the second and third finish were Wagner and Sailor leading behind Boileau. So they were like, I want my money back. I want my money back. We're all crying. It just like sobs throughout the sobs throughout the whole race through the hills of Lyon. Like French the hills sadness. are alive with the, with the um, sound of crying. The sound of French sadness. Sound of French tears. And at this point, like French racing and manufacturing dominance was ousted in a very dramatic way. And before the onset of the World War, with two be- two other Peugeots finishing fourth and seventh, and eleven cars total finishing the race out of the thirty-seven that entered. Now we have the World War One. I. I was about to say World War Two, but that's not this episode. So we have now World War One onset, and it's very interesting of the three Mercedes um, cars and how they were incorporated into the war. So the first two Mercedes, which was Lautenschlager's winning car number twenty-eight and Wagner's other winning card number 40. So we'll start with Lautenschlager's card number 28. Before the onset of the war, it was sent actually to England for a Mercedes exhibition, but W.O. Bentley suspected there was some level of high engineering going on in this car. He was like, I don't know what's up with that car, but there's something up with that car and we need to find it. So when the war um, onset of the war, they pretty much took the car and ended up sending it to Rolls-Royce's factory to have it helped build the blueprints to Rolls-Royce's aero engines during World War One. So and they're like, let's put this airplane engine that's in the car back into an airplane. Yes, they're like, there's full something circle. good. Full circle. Let's do this. And it helped improve it and just kind of used at that point against the Germans in their fight. From there, though, the car was sold off to a bunch of people and then it got into the hands of a Mr. C.T. Brooklyn? Brooklyn Bank? Brooklyn Bank. That sounds like a very white British name. Who turned the two-seater into a four-seater touring car. How do you think you go about doing that? You just ruin a car. I think you just take out the stuff. You look at a thing and you're like, I don't need that. And you throw it in the back and be like, I hope that was Is that like an extension of like when you get in someone's car and they're like, it's a little messy in here. Let me just throw stuff other places except it's already a built car. And you're just like, let me just move things. Yeah, that's like when you go in my car and I'm like, I just broke half the things here. Just just look away. Just look away. I'm going to throw this in the back. Look and away respectfully. Look away respectfully from not at the floor because the floor is dirty. Just look in front or to look the outside. side. Actually, just close your eyes and just we'll figure out when we get there. I'll tell you when we're there. And then Wagner's car number 40 was brought actually was bought by American racer Ralph De Palma, who was actually that year at the French GP. He brought the Mercedes to America and pretty much used it to win a whole bunch of races. Oh, so the car kept on giving. The car kept of giveneth and didn't taketh, but it's just like he just was like, I'm, I'm getting all those W's with the German engine during World War One. <laughs> but pretty much he also, he did want to modify the car. And so he took the car to Packard Motor Car Company, experimental, experimental labs in Detroit, and allowed the engineers to sift through the engine, the Mercedes aeronautics engine. And kind of, they kind of like what the British did in Rolls Royce, uh, built a blueprint and used it in America's Liberty aircraft engines. At the end, the car was though retired because they didn't have the German parts for it. And it somehow throughout the years in the 60s ended up in this um, pedigree car museum in Newport Beach, California. So it's like full circle. But it's interesting how like those cars kind of became like people were like, we're going to learn something about them and then use it against against Germany to use it against Germany. And speaking of... With huh. our last, with our last one. So that one, we went through the British, we went through the Americans. Now we're at the French and how the French use Sailor's card number fourteen. So 
The car was 14, was ended up putting up in Mercedes Roche showroom on Champs Elysees. But when the war broke out, it was commandeered by this Baron Petit. I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's P E T I T. It's like Baron Little. <laughs> I'd like to think of it, but there's no E at the end. And he pretty much needed the car to make his 600 kilometer track driving between Paris to Lyon for breakfast and dinner. Oh. So aircraft engines and the French were like, we just need a snacky. They were like, we just want to snack. Lunch, you know, very important. Like, let's not look at the engine and see what we can do. We just want to make sure we go fast and get lunch. <laughs> and it wasn't actually until 1930s that Mercedes then director Max Saylor. Wow, he moved up into he management. He moved up to management. He is the head of he management. He took his need for speed to management. And he was like, you know what you need? You need someone like me. I go fast. And he ended up doing a trade-in with the Baron and giving him a new Mercedes-Benz. And he ended up taking car number 14 and displayed it in the company's museum, um, car museum. But under the false number of Lattenschlanger's winning car number 28. Mm. And next episode, we will get into why in 1930s Germany, you would want to change the number of a car to the winning number yes. of a car in your showroom. And so until then, see you next time. Bye.